Well, I have good news today, and that is that our series in Romans brings us to our favorite subject, ourselves. <laughs> ourselves. Specifically, how we think about ourselves inwardly. This self-talk, this conversation inside that all of us, I think, understand. The thoughts that we have as we evaluate our life and process people and family and our place in society and our futures, this self-talk. I have a friend that wrote a whole book, primarily for women, about self-talk, the inward conversations. You know, thoughts like this, I'm amazing, or I'm a loser. Self-evaluations like, I'm better than most people, or I'm so worse than most people. Sometimes self-condemnation, but let's be honest. If there is a tendency in the human heart in this spectrum, it is for us to think better of ourselves than we actually are, and to think worse of others than they likely are. And so is this heightened sense of self-importance where the gospel of Jesus Christ wants us to go? Is this where the gospel takes us? Well, here we're going to find today that Paul uh, is going to tell us that the gospel gets us outside of ourselves and allows me to see myself the way that God sees me, which humbles me, and allows me to see other people the way that God sees them, which actually raises their significance, and should motivate us to love them and to serve them. And so that's basically the message today. But here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, or everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. May God bless his word to our hearts today. And as we have seen in our series in Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 11 are all about explaining the gospel. And when you get to chapter 12, he pivots now to applying the gospel. This is what the gospel is and does. This is the difference it should make in our life, that very famous therefore in chapter 12, verse 1. And as he now pivots to this more applicable, practical Christian living, his approach here is kind of like a machine gun. If you read through chapter 12, he's like, boom, boom, this, that, this, that, this, do this, don't do that, be this way, which kind of makes for hard preaching, honestly, because they're not all thematically uh, flowing the same way. We'll do the best that we can. But so much that's practical in here, everything from harmony and relationships to overcoming uh, when we have been wronged, all of that in chapter 12, flowing out of a renewed mind that is delighting in God's will and now is assessing itself properly and motivated to serve Jesus by serving other people. So again, verse 3, here's how he says it, for by the grace given 
To me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself, and I might add herself, some of you think I'm off the hook, herself, more highly than he ought to think. For by the grace given to me, you know, one of the things that's disarming when you're talking with uh, somebody is when they are, they, they are free to share their own failures and their own uh, inadequacies. It gives you a sense, this person kind of has a, a, maybe an accurate view of themselves and it disarms you. And I think that's what Paul does here. He says, for by the grace given to me, who's Paul? An apostle, right? And if you know his story, hated Christianity, hated Jesus, hated the gospel, but God met with him literally, Jesus met with him and showed him grace, and now he serves the church as an apostle. And I think he leads with, for by the grace given to me, because he's, he's basically emphasizing that this is entirely the grace of God. And what does grace do? It reminds us of who we are, that we are sinners. Grace puts us in our place. And that place is a place, a need of God, and a need of his wonderful redemption. Now there's a play on words here in the text. So if you like dad jokes or puns, this is the verse for you because he very cleverly uses the word think in four different ways in the verse. And the first one we see here is he says, don't think too highly of yourselves. The Greek word is a combo word, hyperthink. Hyperthink. Don't, don't Overly think of yourself. Don't superly think of yourself. Don't, don't be hyper about yourself. All these apply. Hyperthink is another word for what? Pride, okay? This very pernicious and pervasive and hard to remove aspect of the fallen human nature. Pride has been our problem from the day that Adam and Eve took of the fruit. It is rooted in the heart of Satan. It is the, the, the root of all the sins that we have ever committed in some way flow from pride. It is self-elevation. It is self-obsession. It is self-worship. We think too highly of ourselves and say, okay, well, I shouldn't do that. What should I do? Should I feign self-debasement? Should I talk down myself? Should I tell myself I'm horrible? No, Paul here is aiming at our self-thinking. And he's carrying the theme from a renewed mind in verse 2. Not only am I thinking about God's will differently, I'm thinking about myself differently. And so he says here, you know, he, he doesn't say, stop bragging. He doesn't say, stop belittling others. But rather, he says, we need to think of ourselves soberly. So the problem here I'm describing in two different ways. You have the, the individual who is a self-elevator, and you have the individual who is a self-debaser. Talk about both of these. So let's talk about self-elevator, okay? Self-elevator. This is what we typically associate with arrogance or haughtiness pride. This is the person, you know, you talk with them, maybe you live with them, and you think this person's got way too high a view of themselves. He has a big head. Dude's got an ego. Say nothing, Jennifer, please. <laughs> I was waiting for the amen. What are we saying? We're saying that the impression that we get 
is that if I could crawl into that person's head and hear the thoughts they have about themselves, they have too high a sense of their importance or their giftedness or their significance. In fact, if I could use an elevator as an illustration of this, let's just say that, that uh, you have a fourth uh, floor intellect, a, a sixth floor friendship capacity, and a second floor, um, uh, what was my third one here, in uh, gifting, okay? So that's the profile. But you look in the mirror and you see somebody who has a seventh floor intellect, uh, you know, a tenth floor friendship gifting, and a, uh, a sixth floor, uh, I get them all confused, you know what I'm going with. You, you, value, you see yourself much higher than, than you ought. And I think this is a good illustration because we've all been on an elevator where we've, we hit a button uh, to, to, to go to a certain floor and we walk out only to discover we're not on the floor we thought. And we quickly turn around and we hope nobody saw us do that, right? You know that feeling with an elevator. I'm not on the floor that I thought I was on. And that is the problem of the self-elevator. I am elevating myself inwardly. I am seeing myself much higher than I actually am. This is the Pharisee in Jesus' story who uh, goes to the temple to pray. And he looks around the room and he thinks to himself, "Dear," and he prays, literally, dear God, I'm glad I'm not like all these other people. And he lists his religious accomplishments, especially this tax collector over here. He was seeing himself as way more significant, way more important than all of these other people. A self-elevator. What do you see as you look around the church? These people that are seeing around, are these inferior people near you? People that if they knew you would really admire you more than they already do? What are you thinking as you evaluate? This morning it made me, strangely reminded me of a, of a joke. I don't tell a lot of jokes, but I'll tell this joke of the woman, uh, we'll say her name was Sally, who went to the pastor and she was very distraught um, with, uh, you know, very troubled. And she went to the pastor and she said, you know, pastor, I have to confess a sin to you. Every time I go to church, I just can't help but sit there and look around and think, I'm the prettiest girl in this church. And the pastor said to her, oh, Sally, for you, that's not a sin. It's just a terrible mistake. <laughs> now, first service, I took a poll on whether I should say, tell that joke second service, and, and I don't remember the results. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think they would encourage me not to. Oh, so... How do you see yourself? That's the self-elevator. I'm way better than I actually am. But the other side of this is, is oftentimes even more difficult, and this is the slippery nature of pride. It's even more difficult, but it's e equally dangerous. And this is the self-deprecator. Okay, this isn't the haughty person or the arrogant person, but the person who's constantly self-condemning. This is the person who wants everyone to know how humble they are. It reminds me of the Churchill quote regarding one of his political uh, rivals. He said, Mr. So-and-so is a very humble man who has a great deal to be humble about. One of my favorite Churchill quotes. But these are the kinds of people that they relish the chance to talk about their failures. And they will go on and on about just how horrible they actually are and what terrible person they are. My brokenness. I, I want to talk about my brokenness on and on. It reminds me, and this is going to date me a little bit, but it reminds me of an episode from The Brady Bunch. 
I grew up watching the Brady Bunch, and there's one particular episode where the middle son, Peter, has uh, the hots for this girl in his class, and it happens to be his birthday, and so his whole class is invited over to his house for his birthday party, and uh, he's hoping that this girl will pay attention. She's not paying him any attention, and so he has a new plan, and he goes and he sits on the steps, you know, the famous steps under the Brady stairs. Mm-hmm, you're all with me. And he sits there all by himself, hoping that somebody will notice that he's all by himself. And sure enough, the classmates, oh, Peter, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And he says, I'm not good at anything. And they said, oh, Peter, yes, you are. And the girl said, you're amazing, Peter. You're so amazing. She showed him great pity, and Peter rather enjoyed it. Pity is pride fishing for a compliment. Pity is pride fishing for some affirmation of worth. These people are nobodies and they want everybody to know just what a nobody they are. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards pointed this out. He says, when this man considers how humble he is, when compared to his proper place of dignity, he admires his humility. Now, if you really want to know how uh, humble a self-deprecator actually is when he is going on and telling you how insignificant he is and what just a nobody he is, just agree with him. <laughs> you know what? You are a nobody. What? <laughs> and see, now you've smoked him out. You've exposed him and the pride that lies behind it. And this the slippery nature of Pride. It can, be, it can be an elevator, and, uh, and, and for some people, their elevator, there's no down buttons. It's all up buttons for them. But it can also be an elevator with only down buttons. There's no up buttons. And so, Paul, help us out here. How are we to, to think about ourselves? Are we to try to elevate ourselves? Are we to try to, you know, deprecate ourselves? What are we to do? And this is what he says that we are to do. Listen, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Don't overthink yourself, don't underthink yourself, rather sober think yourself. Be realistic, be sensible. He says here, according to the measure of faith, and that's a debated phrase about what exactly that means, the measure of faith. I, I don't think it's saving faith because God gives that same saving faith to all of us and we are justified and declared righteous. It's not like that's measured out. But clearly what is measured out is the giftings that God gives to us and the opportunities that God sovereignly gives to us. He has wired all of us differently. He has gifted all of us differently. We're all snowflakes here. We're all a little bit different. Nobody here is exactly the same with the same giftings and experience and capacities and scale and scope. We're all different. And that could be discouraging to us, especially if we, if we compare ourselves to somebody who maybe has a, a, a higher gifting in some area that we like, or God has provided a greater opportunity for them in some area that we wish that God would give to us. And yet we look at like the parable of the talents, for example, where God gives to one man 10 talents, he gives to one man five talents, and he gives to another man one talent, or the master in the, in the story. And 
He goes away, he comes back, the, the man with the 10 has made 10 more. And he's commended. And the one who had five makes five more. And he's commended. And we see in this that God doesn't expect the five-talent guy to do what the ten-talent guy has, and, and God gives the ten talents in the first place. The five-talent's got to do what faithful with the five-talent, and the ten-talent's got to be faithful with the ten-talent. In other words, God, God doesn't grade us on a curve. He evaluates us based upon the stewardship of what he gives us in the first place. So you might be a five-talent person here, and you know, your friend or sister or somebody, they, they're a, they're a 6.1-talent person, and you're like, oh, they've got more talent. You know what? You have just the same opportunity to please God with what he's given you as she does, okay? And just how helpful this is, I think. You know, I, I think about myself. I, I love to read biographies, and a lot of the biographies I read are like eminent Christians and pastors and theologians that... Uh, have lived, and you know, I, I read these stories, and I'm, I'm, I'm at the same time I'm inspired. I also get depressed. Like you read a biography of Charles Spurgeon, and all the things that he did, and the churches he planted, and the ministries that flowed out of him, and the impact he had on the city of London and the world. And you read that, and I, I mean, I can, I just like, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything, not compared to him. But that's not right thinking, is it? Because God's not asking the Spurgeon-level uh, fruit-bearing out of me. He, he just wants little old Steve to be Steve and to be faithful with what he has given to me. And the same thing is true for you. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. God has made you and wired you in a unique way. You've got to be faithful to steward what he's given you. You compare yourself to other people. And uh, either you're going to be hitting the up button because you think you look good, or you're going to be hitting the down button because you don't measure up. Get off the elevator is basically the point. So we need to be realistic and sober about who we are and who God has made us to be, neither overestimating or underestimating. Now, I'm going to say pastorally, a frank assessment that I would make too often of people in our church is that you are underestimating the giftings and the, and the potential that you have. And how do I know this? Because we often will approach people in the church and say, hey, we've got this ministry opportunity, and we think that you would be great at this. And you know what we often, not all the time, but what we oftentimes hear is something like this, oh, I could never do that. I don't have the experience for that. Surely somebody else in this big church could do this and do it better. Oh, no, pastor. I don't think that's the thing for me. Really? You know, the only reason we're talking to you is we see potential for you in this area. You are underestimating what God could do in and through you. In fact, I would dare say all of us underestimate what, you know, it's like the, the famous D.L. Moody quote, the world is yet to see what God can do with one man fully committed to him. If we were consecrated more, I mean, just think of all the things that we could do. We underestimate too often the impact that could happen through us. Here's uh, theologian John Murray. If we consider ourselves to possess gifts we do not have, then we have an inflated notion of our place and function. 
We sin by esteeming ourselves beyond what we are. But if we underestimate, then we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace and we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for our own sanctification and that of others. And how true that is. The potential sitting right here is staggering. Now you might be like, well, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? And what are you talking about? If you look at chapter 12, the next verse is, it's all about what are known as spiritual gifts. Spiritual enablements that God gives to every single Christian. Well, how can I know what it is? And how should I use it? And what's God's call in my life? You know what? I'd love to answer those and I'm going to next week. So you're going to have to come back. But that's where we're going next week. All right. So with that, now let's, let's continue on. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. You got to see this. He gets done with talking about thinking healthy, thinking about ourselves rightly, and what does he flow into? He flows directly into the social horizontal aspect of the gospel. In other words, when I am thinking wrongly about myself, I'm hitting the up button and I'm hitting the down button. But when I'm thinking rightly about myself, I'm not thinking about myself that much. Rather, I'm seeing the opportunity to think about other people and the needs of other people and to see myself as a part of an entire body of Christ. We'll get into that in just a moment. So in a sense, I'm thinking best about myself when I'm not thinking about myself. That spoke to one person. And I'm glad for that, amen. But how many of us spend our days miserable because we are we're just obsessing about ourselves all the time. Thinking about what's not right in my life and all the rest. It's no wonder we're unhappy. We're not made to find happiness in navel gazing all day. But rather to serve other people, especially brothers and sisters in Christ within the church. And the analogy here, here's the danger of the analogy, it's so familiar, okay? So don't let the familiarity of this analogy cause you to miss what he's actually saying because he compares what, he, what, what he's teaching on to the human body, okay? The analogy here is the human body and the parts of the human body. He calls them members, okay? We don't really use that language. I don't call my hand a member, right? We call it a, a body part or an organ of the body. But if you think about the body, there is a, I mean, there is a dizzying array of multifunctioning parts that allow the human body to function the way that it does. Most of the time we're unaware of it. So that right now, I'm going to guess most of us haven't thought about our heart that is pumping and our kidney that is filtering and the immune system which is protecting, and the intestines which are conveying, and the optical nerve that is transmitting, and the blah, 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 we could go on here, and if you were in the medical world, you could probably come up here and fill the afternoon with all these little parts of the body that are constantly working and functioning in harmony with one another. It is truly a masterpiece. 
I'm sure that's what you thought this morning. You looked in the mirror and you thought, I am a masterpiece. This body is amazing. <laughs> but it really is, when you think about the cellular, the pulmonary, the electrical, all these, and just working in harmony with one another. And we know how important the harmony is because what happens when something isn't working in harmony? All of a sudden, we realize how important that little body part is, right? So if you are, if you're just living your life and, and when you're feeling good, you're not thinking about body parts. I just feel good, everything's good, everything's working right. But when you lean over and all of a sudden you, you throw your back out, all, you know, all of a sudden you're like, man, that back's really important. I haven't thought about my back, I haven't prayed about my back, but now I'm thinking about my back all the time. Or when you decide spring cleaning or the first time mowing the yard, you go out and, and you know, you haven't thought all winter about your hamstring, but the first time you lean over and you pull your, all, man, this hamstring, this is really important. This hamstring's working good. You're thinking about it. You're praying about it. You're all about the hamstring, et cetera, et cetera. When a body part stops working in harmony, stops working the way it's supposed to, we realize how important every single part of the body is. This is the analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. The parallel passage, Paul says, what if he had a, a eyes that said to the hand, I don't need you? And what if you had a head that said to the feet, I don't need you? Well, that's fine for them to say that, but when they stop working, all of a sudden, what does the, what does the eye and what does the head realize? Wow, the hand, that's actually quite important. Okay, I'll acknowledge your importance. Or the feet, yeah, we need you working well. Every part is important. Paul, what is your point? Here's his point. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So he draws the analogy from the human body to the actual spiritual body of Christ, which is known as the church, the universal church. This is every Christian true believer around the world and in all of time and the local church, of which our church is one expression. Bethel Church is the body of Christ. But then so is every other gospel-preaching church in Northwest Indiana. We should keep that in mind. And around the world. How are we united? Look, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. This incredible diversity of, of gifts and backgrounds and race and, and spiritual backgrounds that we come to, this incredible diversity is brought together not by the pastoral staff, not by, you know, the walls of the church. We are united, it says, in Christ. And that ought to jump up, out to you if you've been in the series with Romans for very long because we've learned that in Christ is theological shorthand for the doctrine of union with Jesus. This union that we have with Jesus by faith where when he died on the cross, spiritually in the eyes of God, we died with him. And when he was buried, spiritually, we were buried with him. And when he was resurrected from the dead, spiritually, and in the eyes of God the Father, we came out of that grave with him, conquering death, such that now we remain in union with Christ, and because his life is indestructible, so is ours. That's why they call it eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. How can I know that I have eternal life? I am, I am linked in 
united with Jesus. And what Paul is highlighting here is that because I am united with Jesus, it means that I am simultaneously united with everybody else that is united with Jesus. In other words, our unity is not something that we create. It is not something that we have to, uh, you know, we got to be more unified. No, we don't have to be more unified. We are unified in Christ. The call is to display it, to manifest it. And this is the horizontal, the social, ethical, relational aspect of what it means to be a part of the church. Remember that, therefore, that pivot from this is the gospel to this is what it looks like. And one of the key things that it looks like is that I am not in isolation as a Christian, but rather I am seeing myself in a kind of real, eternal relationship with my other brothers and sisters. In other words, the people right here. These are relationships that are going to go on forever because we are united in Christ. So unity in Christ, what is it? It is the outward expression of the eternal reality of being in Christ. Or to say it this way, union with Christ leads to unity in Christ. And this is a huge point throughout Scripture. A few examples. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. There's a good place to start. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Or John 13, Jesus prays this prayer, his high priestly prayer. And he prays that God would make us as one as he and the Father are one. And when you consider trinitarily the union between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how tight that union is, Jesus wants that union to be evident right here amongst us. It's an amazing prayer. Listen to this. When we gather into a local congregation, we are to realize that we belong to each other. We are not simply a group of like-minded people who meet together in a similar fashion to members of some club or guild. We have been unified by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit to the body of Christ. As such, we are not in living union with the head, but in organic union with each other. Members united once to another. This is where the, the experience in a church should be very different than what it means to be a member at Costco. Many of you probably have a member at Costco, Sam's Club, something like that. If you take what it means to be a member there and somehow make it the paradigm for what it means to be a member here, you are completely missing the point. Because when you go to Costco, how, how do you, what do you think about the other people as they push their carts and you're shopping? How, do you feel connected to them in a relationship that will go on forever? No. Sometimes you hope you never see them again, right? As they get in the way, as you're making your way to the sample, which they've currently canceled, I just read this week, which is a very sad development in this whole story. <laughs> to be in the church is is to be a very different experience of relational 
connection. I like the NIV translation. We belong to each other. We belong to each other. We've been united in Christ. I got thinking of the analogy of the body, if you would bear with me here for a moment. When is a thumb the happiest? When is a thumb the happiest? When it's saying and thinking things like this, God, I'm glad I'm not like those other fingers, especially that pinky tax collector over there. I provide the grip. I provide the hold. Without me, these fingers would be largely useless. Therefore, I'm really underappreciated. Or if it said, I'm no good. I don't get to wear rings like the other fingers do. I oscillate. I wish I could just go forward and backward like they do. (laughs) I'm not even close to the others. Perhaps they don't like me. From this, I I deduce that I'm, I'm not that important. A thumb that thinks like that is going to be a very miserable thumb. And the fingers are going to be glad he's way over on the side because they don't either want to deal with his arrogance or to take in his pity party all the time. When is a thumb the happiest? A thumb is the happiest when it sees itself as a small but important part of the hand. And when it works in harmony with the fingers, it can do amazing things like fix a meal, play Beethoven, hold a child, and even signal everything's great. (laughs) A thumb is happy when it either thinks more of itself or less of itself, but thinks of itself less. And this is a great definition of humility, C.S. Lewis. Humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of yourself less. And so I just say, is it no wonder so many of us are unhappy because we spend our days largely thinking about ourselves, wallowing in some kind of either overestimation and therefore I'm constantly unappreciated or an underestimation of our place in the world. And we see here that Jesus is calling us just out of that self-obsession, get off the elevator of up and down. And he puts us in a context where there are opportunities constantly to see the needs that other people have and to live in a way that meets their needs. That's a local church. And when it's going right, it's a beautiful thing. Listen with me. Here is a, um, this is a quote from a second century secular philosopher. He was not a Christian, but he observed Christians in the second century. This is how he described them. They abstain from all impurity in the hope of the recompense that is to come in another world. As for their servants or handmaids or children, they persuade them to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction brothers. They they do not worship strange gods, and they walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. When they see the stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother. For they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God. What would 
a secular atheistic philosopher who hung around our church for three months, what description would he or she make of what it's like to be a part of our church? Would that he would write something like that. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? And what do I see in, in this description? I see beautiful harmony of happy Christians united together in Christ. What do I greatly desire and what do I know God greatly desires to be true here at Bethel Church? Beautiful harmony of happy Christians united together in Christ. That's the vision, horizontally, of what we want to be as a church. And we need you to be a part of it. Yeah, you. The one right now thinking, oh, no, I could never do that. I'm not gifted for that. I'm not. No, you are. And how do I know that? If you look in the next verses, you'll see that God has gifted all of us in unique ways to be a part of this body. And every single part is critically important. Okay, but what are those gifts? What, what are spiritual gifts? How do I know what mine is? How can I use it for God's glory? Oh, that's next week, friends. <laughs> You're gonna have to come back. But for now, I'd like us just to pause for a few moments of meditation right now. Just bow your heads and meditate. Say, God, how does this apply to me? What would you have for me in this? Am I overestimating myself in pride? Am I underestimating myself in pride? Lord, help me get off this elevator. <laughs>